0: In cycling, a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1989, Eddie and Dewilde won Het Volk. Het Volk, now known as Het Noisblad, is the opening race of the Belgian season and the first of the semi-classics. Only two riders have ever won this race while wearing the black, yellow and red jersey of Belgian national champion. The first to achieve this was unsurprisingly Eddie Merckx in 1971. The second and most recent was Etienne de Wilde in 1989. De Wilde had arrived at the 1989 Hedfolk in fantastic form, having already won three stages in both the Etoile de Besseges and the Tour of the Mediterranean. He was so confident coming into Hedfolk that he announced beforehand exactly how he was going to win. He said, I will finish alone and I will attack with three kilometers to go. His team manager, Willy Tierlink, who actually finished second in the amateur edition in 1970, pleaded and said, It will be suicide. I have already arranged with the team sprinters to help you to victory. But De Wilde didn't want to listen. No, he said, I will win in the same way as when I won the Belgian championships. De Wilde did exactly as he said he would do. With just over three kilometers to go, he attacked and went round the left-hand side of a roundabout as a bunch containing 60 riders went round the opposite side. He held off the charging peloton led home by Sean Kelly to win the race, which ended just two kilometers from his hometown of Larne. Kelly immediately turned to the race organisers to complain about DeWilda's manoeuvre. Kelly was claiming that the left hand side of the roundabout, which DeWilda attacked on, was closed off and was not actually part of the race route. DeWilda acted irregularly, Kelly said. He didn't keep to the race route, but Kelly's complaints fell on deaf ears and it would remain one of the few major one day races that would always elude him.
1: Welcome to this, the second episode of This Week in Cycling History. My name is John. And I'm Killian. We should really let people know that Force of Habit meant that the first two times we tried that, I called myself Scott. <laughs> oh. It's a terrible thing. Now, I think there's a bit of a bias in this week's show, because although you know you were talking about Etienne de Vilde winning Het Volk, which I still call it now, even though it's changed its name. Yeah, me too. That story was really about Sean Kelly, wasn't it? Is this going to be a feature every week, or are we just going to get this week in Irish cycling history?
0: Well, it's a bias that's easily... For me to, to lean on because I, I I find myself reading so much about the Irish lads so I, I kind of I almost make no apology for the Irishness creeping into the stories but no I'll I'll will make an effort not to to um be too Irish about the whole thing but there is a, a, a second story this week with another Irish flavour to
1: it but, actually uh, to be fair though I mean this is a race that's dominated by you know hard men from the north farmers miners you know blue collar workers escaping their fate. Um and you know that that really sums up Ireland. You you know you've got Kelly on his farm and that sort of thing. Um, so this this isn't a race for Southern Softies, is it?
0: No, and it's actually, it's rather surprising that Kelly never won it. You know they always c- kind of describe him as a man for all seasons and that he's competitive all year long. And you know Headfolk more more than other races is 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 for people who kind of maybe are on top form when others aren't because it's so early in the season and. You know the reputation that Kelly had was that he was kind of always there or thereabouts on on good form, and the fact that he never won it is kind of surprising. Although he, just like the Tour of Flanders, which he also never won, he he finished on the podium of fog three times, but uh, he 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 never
1: got there in the end. He was maybe a bit soft just to finish it off in these hard cobalt climbs. <laughs> Absolutely, I wouldn't <laughs> say that to his face. <laughs> Shall we move on because the the, the two stories that you've got. The, the start of the show this week um, are, are both a bit vault. so we might as well lump them both together. So the next one strangely enough all, also features an Irish bloke. Um, do you want to run us through that one?
0: Uh, before we move on from from that um, Etienne de Wilde victory, um, something I should say was that I, I mentioned there was only two riders that won the race wearing the, the black, yellow and red as Belgian champion and wh- while that's true, there's actually three riders who have won the race as Belgian champion the other was Freddie Martins I think it was in 1978, but he was also world champion at the time. So he was wearing the rainbow jersey, but he was Belgian champion. So there have been three riders to have won it. And and another thing I said was that uh, Eddie Merckx was the first to have won it as Belgian champion, which I said was perhaps unsurprising, but it actually is surprising because the surprising thing about it is Merckx was only ever Belgian champion once in 1970, which is, uh, which is definitely un- unusual considering the, the amount of victories he, he amassed over the years for him only to win his national title once was was definitely
1: unusual yeah, i mean that's the flip side of wilfred nelson that we were talking about last week isn't it who was belgian champion umpteen times but one bugger all else that's that's it yeah so in N- nelson better than mercs uh, well on, on his <laughs> day in belgium presumably <laughs> yeah. uh let's move on to the next one in in
0: 1959 seamus elliott won Head folk since the race's inception in 1945 there have only been 11 non-belgian winners of this race the first to break the domestic stranglehold on the winner's podium was Irishman Seamus Elliott in 1959. Elliott was the first Irish rider to make an impression on the continent. He had won races in previous years, most notably a couple of stages of the four days of Dunkirk, but winning head folk punctuated the arrival of Elliott on the international racing scene. In second place that day was a writer called Fred de Bruyne. At that point, De Bruyne had already won Milan-San Remo, Paris-Roubaix, the Tour of Flanders and Liège-Bastogne-Liège, as well as six stages of the Tour de France, but Elliot beat him in a two-man sprint. It was the first major win of his career and it would be followed by stage wins in all three grand tours, as well as a stint in the yellow jersey at the Tour de France, along with a silver medal at the World Championships. He spent most of his career with the St. Raphael team of Jacques Anquetil and John Stablinski, But Elliot's career was hampered by bad luck and misfortune. He always seemed to be dishing out favours for teammates, never to receive the same courtesy in return. A famous example of this occurred in the 1962 World Championships in Salo in Italy, where Elliot was in the race-winning move with three other riders, Joseph Houvenars, a Belgian, Rolf Wolfschall, a German, and Jean Stablinski, a Frenchman, and Elliot's trade teammate. One of these riders was going to win the race. Stablinski and Elliot were great friends at the time. The Frenchman was actually godfather to Elliot's son. Elliott broke clear of the other three riders as the race reached its climax with 20 kilometers to go. But instead of Stablinski sitting on the back wheel of Huvenars and Wolfshow, he orchestrated the chase and contributed it himself. Elliot said about it afterward that a little bit of coaxing on Stablinski's behalf got the Belgian and the German over on his side of the fence. When Elliot was caught, Stablinski launched a counter-attack, which Elliot did not respond to, and the Frenchman rode away into the rainbow jersey as Elliot had to settle for a silver medal. French journalist and former cyclist Jean Bobet talked about that day years later and said that Elliot was by far the strongest rider in the race and should have been crowned world champion. Bobet also pointed out a wicked coincidence that the race was held in Salo, spelt S-A-L-O, but the French word Salo, spelled S-A-L-A-U-D, means traitor or cheater after a similar incident involving both elliot and Stablinsky occurred during the paris luxembourg race 2 years later their relationship deteriorated further and elliot left the team
1: i think Stablinsky um, elliot seems to have been hugely loyal to him as well because I, I, I don't i don't think he he kind of posited the traitor theory quite so much and i think what Stablinsky said at the time was that uh, elliot softened up the group by repeatedly attacking Uh, which is a a different take on the thing. This is a tragic man, though, isn't it?
0: Well, uh, just the fact that you said it's a different take, like if you actually go to the Wikipedia page for Shea Elliot, it has a completely different take on the story. Now, I actually got this uh, little snippet about that World Championships from there's a DVD called The Cycle of Betrayal, Mm -hmm. which kind of chronicles Elliot's life. It's very good if you can get your hands on it. It's for sale. But um, on the Wikipedia page, it kind of says that uh, Elliot... it it, it was the opposite that Elliot was doing Stablinski a favor that like you say, Elliot was, was softening up the group for Stablinski and then Stablinski attacked and Elliot marshalled the group and, and, and did the perfect teammate thing and Stablinski uh, won because of Elliot and Elliot was happy to do that work. But uh, really the impression you get from the DVD where they interview all his friends is is completely the opposite that Elliot really felt betrayed that day. And, uh, you know, I said in the little snippet that, uh, it was a little bit of coaxing on Stablinski's behalf. I think it's, you know, it was it was definitely implied that there was money changed
1: hands. You know, well, no, there was definitely money changed hands. I think um, Elliot himself died only thirty six years old, but was a huge talent. I mean, I don't think we would have seen the likes of, I mean, Kelly and Roach clearly would have written to the top anyway, but without you know without Shea Elliot blazing the trail, who knows if they'd have reached you know the, the giddy heights that they did.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose he, he also—I mean, th- they all get lumped in, or maybe not so much anymore, but definitely back then, riders got lumped into the English-speaking category. Yeah, and, and Shay Elliott not only blazed the trail for the Irish riders, but but for English riders as well. He he was definitely a pioneer for all of them, um, in 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 the in the sixties.
1: Now, the, the one thing he contributed—I mean, he was a, he was a champion and a great champion. But one of the things I think that he contributed particularly to to us at this time of year is he was the person who suggested that they introduced the Arenberg Forest into Paris Roubaix. So even if he did betray Shea Elliott, he deserves some kudos for that.
0: Yeah, he he definitely does. And and just to touch on the the Paris Luxembourg story that that was uh, um, that I touched on at the end there, that something similar happened in in that it was a four day race and Elliot was in the lead after three stages. It was the final stage. And a break got away, a kind of a substantial breakaway. And Elliot's two teammates, uh, both, both Jacques Ancetil and Jean Stabinski, got into the breakaway. And, and you know, your teammates behind in, in the race lead, going to win the race, you would expect them to sit on and uh, do no work. But they didn't. Again, they they contributed to the break. And uh, it, it, by the time Elliot realized how, how much of a, of a gap they were actually getting, it was too late. And uh, Stablinski ended up winning that race as well. So yeah, you know you can imagine how their relationship just kind of fell apart after that. And yeah, another I mean, thing I should say before before anybody um, decides to complain or anything about, about the show's title that that actually wasn't this week in cycling history because Head <laughs> folk that year was held in on the fourth of April. Um, just for 1958 and 1959, it was held in April, and in 1960. It actually wasn't held at all because of uh, arguments with race organisers and calendar dates. But it, it was eventually shifted back to the, to the last week in February, which, which is where it is now.
1: I think we can get away with that because we're talking about a race that's happening this week. So I'm, I'm not feeling too guilty about that one. Okay. Um, now, Shea Elliott was found dead uh, at the age of 36. His marriage had failed. Uh, his son, I think, had been killed in a traffic accident or something. Uh, and his dad had died two days before. So clearly a troubled man, but uh, deserves to be remembered. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And there's a there's a book as well, actually, which is kind of hard to get your hands
0: on. I I found it very difficult to find even in Irish bookshops. I ended up buying it in a bicycle shop, but it's called Shay Elliot: The Life and Death of Ireland's First Yellow Jersey by Graham Healy. And and um, yeah, it's I'm sure you'll get it on on Amazon.
1: Cool. Now we're getting a bit more into my era with the last one. Um, so do you want to kick us off with our final thought for what happened this week? Sure. In 2004, Mario Cipollini's Domino
0: Vacan's team received a wildcard invite to the Tour de France. The previous year, the Tour de France race director Jean-Marie Leblanc had caused a stir by deciding not to invite Cipollini's team, despite the fact he was the world road race champion. The tour organizers were growing tired of Cipollini's unwillingness to finish their race. Before 2003, Cipollini had competed in seven tours de France, had won 12 stages along the way, but had never made it all the way to Paris. The organizers were also growing tired of the Italian sprinter's propensity for rule breaking with his flamboyant kit choices, which led to constant fines. Prior to this snub, Cipollini was confident that his new Dominic Vacan's Eletron team would receive an invite. He said at the time, if I am competitive, and I will be, the centenary tour will be happy to have the world champion. I'm not concerned by the fact that I haven't been invited yet. I spoke with Leblanc and he only wants to have guarantees from my new team. That was in February. But in May 2003, ASO announced its final roster of teams for the tour, and Cipollini's was not amongst them, meaning the rainbow jersey would not be present in the centenary edition. Cipollini threatened retirement a number of times, but eventually decided to race on. In 2004, ASO extended the aforementioned invite to his Domino Vacan's team, who had actually dropped down a division for that year's Tour de France. The move was seen as a peace offering from ASO to the ageing sprinter. But true to form, Cipollini abandoned after stage five, and one of the world's most remarkable sprinters would never race in the Tour de France again.
1: i tell you the thing that surprises me. Cipollini's got the, the record for the number of stage wins in the Giro. Yeah. Uh, which is 42. Yeah. And the person whose record he supplanted was Alfredo Binda. Yeah. And it, we'll talk about him, because, I mean, he's a, he's a giant and you know, in the history of cycling. There was one year I think he was paid not to compete because he'd been so successful the previous year. That's right, yeah. Um, It's really sad, and one of my main motivations for this show is that for most people of my age, what he's remembered for is his name on a toe strap. And for people of this generation, a clipless pedal, they've probably never heard of him at all. So, I mean, that's one of the things we're going to do in the, this show is bring out people like Shay Elliott mm-hmm. and Alfredo Binda that people might not have heard about. Yeah. Um... I love Cipollini. One of my great regrets was that he came back and raced for Michael Ball and rock racing. Yeah, he didn't do much, did he? No, he was rubbish. Um so he did beat Mark Cavendish in a sprint when he came back. <laughs> to California. That's worth doing. Yeah. Um what are your biggest memories of him? We've talked about
0: the nineteen ninety-three Tour de France before and it, because that was actually the it was it was pretty much the first tour that I really, really was engrossed by and, um, yeah, when you were six, or something. <laughs> not not far off. <laughs> and um, w- w- one of the abiding memories I have is the stage one in the nineteen ninety three Tour de France. He beat um, Wilfred nelson, and uh, he he won the sprint, and he didn't even get out of the saddle. Yeah. If you, if you watch the replay of that race, it's amazing. He, he just. He, he he's in the saddle the entire time. Everyone around him is rocking their bikes from side side to side, and he is just in the saddle the whole time. And to win a Tour de France, not even lifting your arse up, is, is just phenomenal, you know.
1: Yeah, I think my favourite memory. I mean, there's many where they dressed up in the rest day to celebrate the the birthday of Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah. and I think he was the first person to wear um, yellow shorts with a yellow, you know, with a Mayo Jean. And he got fined for and, that as well. He got fined for it, but I mean, it's it's commonplace now. So I mean, that was a trend that he started. Yeah. But I think my my favourite memory isn't of him actually sprinting, and it's of the kind of northern hard races that we're talking about just now. And it was the two thousand and two Gent Fevrelgum, yeah, that's where right. he attacked in his own from the chasing group and got up to win, in you know, in the the small group at the front. Yeah, I, I, think I think that from, was his only ever win, not from a bunch sprint. Yeah, and it showed that if he'd put his mind to it. He could have done, you know, he could have been a great, a a damn good hard man classics rider. Yeah. But he was just so good at sprinting that, you know, why change a winning formula?
0: Yeah, I mean, and especially like when when he was at Saico and, well, all of his teams, I mean, he had such uh, strength behind him in numbers with with his lead out train. I'm sure if he decided to take it upon himself to attack, he, he would have gotten serious trouble from his from his team because um you know they were all set up for a lead out train and sprints and 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 that's that was his job at the end. Yeah, and
1: again I mean that that's a pattern that carried through to HTC. So I mean he he's a genuine historical figure. Yeah, yeah.
0: And and like yeah as you, I mean it's the same with Cavendish now. I mean he's paid to to win sprints. He's not paid to go attacking. But H- Cavendish um he seems to have a desire to become a kind of a more of a, a rounded uh rider, you know that does take on cobbled classics from time to time. But anyway, I suppose time will tell. But another thing to say about Cipollini is that, uh, you know, he could climb when he wanted to. I mean, he, he finished the Giro a number of times. He won, the, he, ne- he he never finished the tour, but he, he won the points Jersey in the Giro three times. And yeah. often the Giro climbs are, 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 are harder than the tour. So, you know, when he's motivated in his own home race, he, he could do it. And I think that's why, the the Tour de France organisers got annoyed with him was because it was obvious he could do it when he wanted to, but he just wasn't bothered in in the Tour. Yeah. Just turned up and won his couple of stages and then hit the beach.
1: So that's the end of episode two of This Week in Cycling History. Um, You can contact us just using the general Velocast email, which is velocast.cc at gmail.com. Killian and I are on Twitter pretty much all the time. Uh, Killian is Irish Peloton and I'm Sofa Boy. If you want to make a contribution, you can do so using the PayPal button on our site. But please, if you do, mention in the notes that it's it's a contribution for this week in cycling. And that way, Killian gets a bit of the dosh as well. And in fact, you know, you've got your first installment this week. You must be going to retire now, Killian. <laughs> I, I, I did. it uh, would be, it'd be enough, <laughs> enough for a couple of sneaky points later on, maybe. Actually, serious point. We're really grateful for people. You know, we've been number one in the iTunes outdoor charts in Britain all week. Um up in the top 10 and occasion in the general sports thing so we really appreciate people taking the trouble to listen uh, and also we really appreciate people taking the trouble to give contributions
0: yeah it's fantastic to get the feedback on twitter as well you, you know i i mightn't always re- reply but i i obviously i i get all the messages and i read them all and and the the people that that say that they really enjoy the show it's uh, it's it's fantastic and it's gives gives a reason to, to do it all over again the next week, you
1: know. Well, no, it's good fun, and as I say, we're, we're shining a light in some of the you know, more neglected corners of cycling history. This show will likely get longer, but we're, we're playing about with the format just now, so bear with us during the first few ones, but hopefully it'll still be enjoyable. We'll talk to you next week. Ta-ta.